Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Community Church. Thank you. Everyone okay? Good. So, we're going through Genesis. Yeah. Come on. Um, just a reminder that we've got our Genesis evenings starting this evening. Um, there are some leaflets out there if you need the, um, the dates. Uh, but what we're going to be doing in that tonight, we're going to start um, looking at Genesis 1 and 2. And what we're focusing on is uh, the creation story, found particularly focusing on Genesis 1 and 2. And um, looking at how we read that well, how do we read it faithfully, uh, how does it speak to us, what does God speak through it. And then also considering how the developments in science, like the theory of evolution, theory of the Big Bang, how does that impact how we read scripture, uh, what are the questions it raises and how do we work through that together. So I encourage you to come along. Um, it's going to be really good because we're going to spend time together around God's word and that's a good thing to do. So please don't think it's overly sort of intellectual or you know if you wouldn't consider yourself um, an intellect or a theologian, it's going to be very accessible. Um, we'll have a great time together and we'll probably come out with more questions uh, than answers, but we'll hopefully answer some along the way as well. So please do join us. We're going to meet here about quarter to seven, grab a drink, kick off seven sharp because we've got tons and tons to get through. So we're walking through the book of Genesis and what we're doing in that is looking at the opening themes of God's story. Uh, and we've been asking ourselves, what do these wonderful, beautiful, and sometimes a little bit bizarre uh, stories that we find in Genesis, what do they tell us about God? What do they tell us about who he is, his nature, the way he acts? Um, what do they tell us about the world that we live in? And what do they tell us about us and who we are uh, in the world as well? And one of the ways that we can understand the story of God, if we want to, is we can look at it like a kind of play. And uh, Tom Wright does this, he breaks it down into five acts, if you like, like five sections, five acts of a play. And what we've done so far, in the, up to this point in the series, is we've looked at Act 1 and Act 2. So Act 1, if we've got it on there, is creation. And what happens in Act 1 is God creates a good, wholesome world. So a good, personal, intimate, caring God creates a good, wholesome and beautiful world. And then what he does is he, he creates humanity. And he places humanity in this world as his image to partner with humanity in order to continue to create and to make this beautiful place. That his image, his kingdom, the stuff we've been talking about this morning, his kingdom would be established and demonstrated. His reign and rule would be established all over this beautiful world. That's act one. Act two, we looked at last week and I think the week before, that can kind of be categorised as the fall. And what happens in the fall is humanity rebel against their creator. They disobey God, they turn, they don't trust him, they don't put their hope in him and um, they don't believe what he says. And they fall, they sin or they rebel against him. They choose their own path and the results 
can be seen in them being driven from the Garden of Eden and the beginning of brokenness and suffering and pain and all of these things enter into the world. And we see that it's only one chapter after this happens that we have the first murder. The first murder, the chapter after, then we have sort of the development of uh, wickedness and um, weapons even, corruption. And this culminates and builds until we get to the flood and where it says, and Andrew preached on this, that the thoughts and intentions of humankind was evil, pure evil. And then it builds to the Tower of Babel where humankind basically says we can do it ourselves. We'll make things in our image and we'll build a tower that gets us to heaven and glorify our own name. Act 2. Okay? Act 1. Act 2. And what we can see here, as I mean we're only sort of 11 chapters into the Bible as we have it. But we can see already that there is a God who seems to be good, who creates what seems to be a good and wholesome world, but something has gone horribly wrong. Something isn't right. And Andrew spoke last week uh, about Noah and the flood and reminded us that this is a story of God's faithfulness to humankind. That actually God remains faithful to humankind in the midst of humankind's disobedience and their um, cruelty and their wickedness. And Andrew was perfectly right, I think, in pointing out that we cannot just assume this is how God should be. And we do that now because we have Jesus, we know Jesus, and we've got the whole of the scriptures and we've learned this. We say, well, that's God, that's what God does, that's his job, you know what I mean? But we have to remember that actually those reading these scriptures for the first time or hearing the oral traditions wouldn't have that thinking because they would be very aware of the other gods that are around at that time. And those other gods are a bit of a mixed bag. Some of them are a bit mischievous. Some of them can be evil. Some of them can turn on you. Their morals aren't always right. So what you kind of have to be thinking is more like Thor, the movie, yeah? You know Thor? You're thinking God's like that, you know. Is he, this has happened. Is our God going to be, are we going to get Thor or are we going to get Loki? Yeah? Some of you look at me blank. Have you not seen the films? Okay. So... And even Thor, with his brokenness, you know, we're going to get a God like that, that actually tries their hardest but has their brokenness, or they're not sure, or they have their doubts or whatever. What kind of God are we going to get here? But God demonstrates through Noah and the flood that he has not given up on humankind. He remains faithful to his promises and his original plan with Adam and Eve. And so the natural, logical, rational question is, good, wholesome Great world, gone horribly wrong, remaining faithful God. So what is God going to do then? Do you see that? Yeah? What is God going to do about the mess? And I think that's the right question. I've thought about this quite a bit. And I think that's the right question to ask at this point. What is God going to do about the mess? You see, um, you've seen already, I have um, one of my kids up here. I have two other kids. Uh, so three kids. If you came to my house... And my house was a complete mess. There's stuff, food up the walls, paint everywhere, dirt everywhere. And you sort of walked in and went, oh dear, what's going on here? I might turn to you and say, well, it's the kids. The kids have messed this up. They've made a horrible mess. 
And you'd be well within your right to say, well, yeah, but it is your house. Ultimately, it is your house. The responsibility is yours. And I think that, yes, humanity has messed things up. Don't get me wrong. Yes, it is our fault, humanity's fault, that the original design has been damaged and what God intended is not coming about. However, God remains the creator. He remains responsible in a very real sense for his creation, for the cosmos. And so the question is then, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about the state that things are in? And there could be a number of options open to God, I guess. Um, One of them, he's already said he's not going to do. So he's committed to not wipe humanity off the face of the earth. He said, I'm not going to do that. That could be one option, couldn't it? Done with them, start again. He said, I'm not going to do that. Uh, What else could he do? Um, I guess he could appear as a huge being, couldn't he? He could turn, I don't know, like a hundred foot person and sort of say, I am God, you will obey me, sort of that sort of thing. That could be an option. Uh, He could um, become a tyrant and say, actually, this hasn't worked, this kind of faithful partnership thing. You're just going to have to obey me and become a tyrant and make humanity do what he wants. Could raise up an army, could destroy people. All of these options, there are probably other possibilities. There's lots of things God could do at this point. And I imagine that those listening to these stories, when they're originally being told or when they're reading the scriptures for the first time, they're reading through. Could you imagine? And you're thinking, what's going to happen then? Act one, good, wholesome world. All gets ruined. What's this God going to do? They're on the edge of their seat. Wait, what is God going to do in this moment? And I think that a rescue plan can tell us a lot about the nature of the rescuer. One of my favourite films, Liz knows this well, is this film, Lego Batman. And who's seen Lego Batman in this room? Put your hands up. What? What? So let me recommend this. I genuinely, this is genuinely think this is the best superhero film that has ever been made. Genuinely think that. It is fantastic and it's a brilliant spoof. It's absolutely brilliant. But one of the great things about this character and about the whole Lego Batman thing is they sort of take this spoof spin on the Dark Knight films. Who's seen the Dark Knight films? Yeah, a few more. Still, these references are not working out, aren't they? In the 1980s, no, I'm joking. Uh, So they take this spin on, and what you've got is this Lego Batman who's sort of egotistical, self-centered, sort of has a broken past and is trying to make up for it. Uh, loves the, prow- the, the um, praise of the crowds and all of that kind of thing. It's just a brilliant, brilliant character. And so the rescue plans that he comes up with are ultimately sort of all about him. He does the fighting. He'll take everyone on his own. And he'll use all these amazing gadgets. And in the end, he'll sort it out. The crowd will go amazing. He'll go and take all the applause. Even shoots merch, which I love. Shoots merch and dice at people. And, and then he goes and, and loves it and then goes and bees alone and sulks in his cave. It's fantastic. The rescue plan tells us a lot about the rescuer and the nature of the rescuer. So the question is, what will God do? How will his rescue plan reveal his character and who he is? 
things are a mess. There's suffering, there's pain, there's murder, there's rebellion, there's death. What is God? What is God, the creator, going to do about it? And as we go through and continue through the book of Genesis and through Exodus and into Leviticus, I don't mean on a Sunday morning, don't worry. But as you follow the story of God and learn who he is, and we go into the Old Testament, what we realize is that God's plan is going to be revealed very slowly. Very slowly. And very carefully over time. It's going to be revealed in history, through real people, in real events, and real things that happen. And I think that says a lot about God. One, it says he's not panicked. He's not anxious. Now, he's already expressed, he's not saying he's not bothered, because he's expressed in Genesis 6, Andrew talked about this, he's heartfelt both anger and his deep grief at the state of the world. He's grieved to the core about how things are. However, he's not panicking. He's not going to quickly try and sort, sort everything out. He's going to take his time. He's going to work with real people. So it isn't a theoretical idea. It's not an ideology he's going to come up with. But he's going to take real people doing real things. And through that, he's going to reveal his rescue plan. And Genesis 12 is what we're going to talk about today, which is when we see the first hints of what this rescue plan is going to be. And it begins with a man named Abraham. Actually, his name's Abram, but God renames him as Abraham, which means father of many. And there's a lot of Genesis to cover if I was going to read Abraham's story. We would be here for a few hours. And I was going to summarise it for you, but helpfully, Nehemiah does that for us. So if you want to turn your Bibles, I will have it on the screen behind. We're going to look at Nehemiah 9, verse 6 to 8. And it says these words, You are the Lord, you alone. Talk about Act one here. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. He found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You see, God's plan is to remain faithful to humanity, even though humanity has failed miserably to be faithful to him. That is God's rescue plan. I will remain faithful to you. And the way that he's going to do that is through something called a covenant or through a number of covenants. And covenant isn't a word really that we use a lot in our day-to-day lives today, but it is an important word to understand uh, if you're going to study the Bible and look at scripture. 
And um, covenant really is about a partnership, ultimately. That is what covenant is about. It's a partnership. Nehemiah 9.8 says, You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the rest of them. So the covenant, if you like, is a set of promises made by God to Abraham and kind of says this, hey, I'm going to do this and this and this for you. That's what I'm going to do for you. And you need to keep this set of commitments to me. That's what a partnership is. That's what a covenant really is all about. So the nearest thing we have in our day is the marriage covenant. Uh, marriage covenant, if you think about it, in a few weeks' time, Natalie, the lovely Natalie and Lee, are going to stand here and they're going to make a set of vows to one another. And what they'll be doing in that is they're saying, actually, we're going to make a covenant together, a partnership where uh, I'm going to commit to love you and to care for you and to protect you and give my body solely to you. And you're going to do that to me. You're going to commit that to me. And through that, we're going to have a partnership, a covenant, if you like, a marriage covenant together to go through life. That's what a covenant is, a partnership made between two people, an agreement with promises and commitments to one another. And this is how God is going to restore what was lost in Act 2, by making a number of covenants, partnerships, with humankind for God and humans to work together to bring God's kingdom, his rightful reign and his rule on the earth. And so what we see here really is the beginning of what we might call Act 3 in the great big play that we've been talking about. And we could perhaps summarize that as Israel, the beginning of Act 3, Israel. What God is going to do to rescue the world is he's going to take an insignificant, unimpressive, unremarkable group of people And he's going to bring them to himself and he's going to walk with them, have relationship with them, talk with them. And then through that, he's going to bless and let his kingdom come out into the rest of the world. That is the plan. And this intention is made clear when God speaks to Abraham and he says these words, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see that? He's going to take this group of people in. He's going to walk with them, talk with them, demonstrate through them what walking with God is like. And through that, He's going to bring blessing to the entire world. And that is, and I believe still is, God's plan. That's how he works. God intends to take a group of unimpressive, unremarkable, insignificant people, bring them to himself, partner with them, covenant with them, if you like, and then demonstrate to the rest of the world what it looks like and feels like to live under the reign of And the rule of God. That's the calling of the church, isn't it, today? That's still the way God is working today. We've heard it already from Liz. Think about what Jesus says. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God. It's about his reign and his rule. 
He prays your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's all about God's rule and reign. And even in Revelation, the book of Revelation, where we begin to get hints and signs of things that will come at the end of time as we sort of know it, it says these words, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. You want to live in that place. Is that where you want to live? It's where I want to live. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. If you don't like that, unfortunately that's where we're heading. That's the destination. The kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. That was the calling of Abraham, of Israel, and the many following you know, kings and others who came after. And it's the calling of the church today to be a city on a hill, to be a light in the darkness. So that through us, through Abraham, through Israel, through the church, through you and through me, people could look and they could say, wow, that's what it's like to live under the reign and the rule of Jesus. That's what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. That's the covenant. God says, I will be faithful to you. And if you remain faithful to me, then the blessing of my kingdom will flow out into this world and will remake it, be a new creation. And the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. But I can tell from your faces, some of you are thinking, there's a bit of a problem. And there is, there's another problem. What's the problem? You are. I am. Tim Murray talked about uh, G.K. Chesterton the other week and when there was a column in the newspaper that said, you know, write in and tell us what is wrong with the world and he simply wrote, I am. I am. And what's amazing is that God knew this from the beginning. God knew this was the problem. You see, the covenant requires that you keep commitments. The covenant requires that God is faithful to you and that you remain faithful to him. The partnership requires us to remain faithful, to remain faithful to God, to love him, to put our hope in him, to put our trust in him, to put him first, to obey him. But we can't. We don't. And I think the way that God makes his covenant with Abraham uh, in chapter 15 demonstrates this really clearly. And what happens is God comes to Abraham and God says, hey, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And through you, we're going to put the world back together. And he says, go and get some animals. And Abraham goes and gets some animals. And then Abraham cuts him in half. God doesn't tell him to, which is a really funny thing. He just does it. It's a natural reaction at that time. Obviously, you get given animals, you cut them in half. And he places these animals. He puts half of the um, half of the half of animals on one side, and he puts the other half on the other side. And there's a few different interpretations of this, but I think that this 
was a way of, of making a covenant at this time. This was a way that those reading would have understood a covenant, a partnership was being created here. And what they did is they, they would place animals on one side, the half of the animal on that side, the half of the animal on that side. And then those making the covenant would walk through the middle of these animals. And what they were saying is this partnership that I have with you is so strong, it's in blood. And what they're saying is, I'm going to walk through this, and if I do not keep this covenant, then may I be torn apart like these animals. May I be ripped apart like these animals are. I think that is what is going on in this passage. But what's fascinating, and some of you will know this story, is that Abraham places the animals on each side and, and then he's sent, he, he has a deep sleep. He goes into a sleep and there's some prophetic things about Israel and what's going to happen in Israel. And then a flaming torch and a, a smoking part, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, smoking fire part and a flaming torch pass between the animals. Abraham never walks. Because God knows God knows that humanity cannot keep that covenant. He knows it. Even at this point. But God's faithfulness is so great to humanity that he's going to keep it anyway. And he's not giving up. And so, in many ways what happens is God says, I'm making this covenant with humanity. But I'm going to pass between that, those animals. Oh, sorry guys. <clears throat> And he says that because, it's because I know what I'm coming on to, that's why I'm crying. Because he says that you cannot keep it, but you, it has to be kept for the kingdom of God to come. It has to be kept. And so what it does is he walks between. And so you guys know the story. Many, many years later, God comes as man, as Jesus. And he keeps the covenant. He lives as he should live. He obeys. He loves as he should love. He's completely faithful to God. And God is completely faithful to him. And yet, because he stands in our place and he takes the part of the human part of that agreement, then just like those animals were torn apart, he is torn apart. He pays that price. That was God's great rescue plan. 
seen there even at the beginning of time itself. God's work. God would keep the covenant. God would take our shame, our sin, our lack, our inability to be who God created us to be because he's faithful to the end. He will not give up on humanity even though he had every right, every right to give up and move on. But he won't do it. He will rescue us and work with us and partner with us now in Christ so that his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his kingdom would flow out as blessing into the world. That's God's great rescue plan. The question is, what's required? what is required of us then? You think, well, if God's doing it all, if God's making both sides of the covenant, then what, what is required? What do we need to do? Do we do nothing? Let's look at what Abraham did. In Genesis 15, God makes his promise to Abraham. And then it says, and he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. It's a critical verse to understand justification, that we are justified by faith and not because of what we do or because of our performance. Abraham believed the Lord. Another way to say this is Abraham trusted God. He trusted him. That was what was required of Abraham. Abraham will go on to fail. We know that from reading the text. He won't remain faithful to God. He'll try to do things his own way. He'll try to make things happen his own way. He's going to lie. He's going to cheat. He's going to be fearful. He's not going to think God's going to come through. He's going to do all of that, all of the things that all of us do most days. And yet he trusted God. God gave him the faith to trust him, to put his hope in him, to believe him. And that is the hallmark of faith. According to Paul in the New Testament, Paul says that if we are Christ's, then we are Abraham's offspring. We're his offspring. We're, this is our great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. And so the promises of God that were made to Abraham through the generations, through Israel, through ups and through downs, into the New Testament, through the church, come to us. Today, you and me, through Christ, to you and to me. That God might take this insignificant group of people, unimpressive as we are, untalented in many ways, nothing much to see, but God will take us to himself. He will demonstrate his faithfulness and his love to us. And then through us and through the power of God and Christ in us work to share his blessing into the world that his kingdom might come here on earth as it is in heaven. So we're going to come to communion. And I want to finish by really just saying, you know, you're going you're gonna to fail 
you're probably going to fail. I'll be honest with you now. Sorry to burst your bubble, but most of you probably know this by now. You're going to fail. You're not going to make it through in your own strength. You're not going to be everything you want to be, let alone everything that God wants you to be. You're not going to do it. Neither am I with all the best will, training, YouTube videos, whatever in the world. You're not going to do it. And when you look at the brokenness of your own life, you're not going to fix it. You've probably tried and realised you can't. When you look at the brokenness of the church, very broken, you're not going to fix it. When you look at the brokenness of your family, or your friends, or your community, or society, we're not going to fix it. But God can. And we can, like Abraham, because of the grace God gives us, put our hope and our trust in him. We can believe God, believe him, allow, allow him to work in and through us. So to close, I wonder what needs rescuing in your life? What needs rescuing? Perhaps it's your own faith. Maybe you've lost faith, you don't have faith. You don't, or maybe you don't know God yet. You know, maybe you don't even know the faith that I'm talking about. Let me say to you this morning, you can't make it through on your own. You need a faithful God. A God who will consistently and relentlessly fight and fight and fight for you. Or perhaps the situations around you that need rescuing. If you don't have any, I can give you some. I'll plenty out there. The brokenness, things that just are just broken. We're not going to rescue it ourselves, but we can put our hope and our trust in a God who can. Why don't we pray as the band come back up and we'll go into communion. Father, as we look back at Abraham, it's a remarkable thing that we even have these scriptures let alone that they speak to us so many thousands of years on and yet we see in them your great work we see in them your great love and your great faithfulness to us as we come to communion now father may we respond to your faithfulness not by attempting to equal that faithfulness because we never will but just being thankful for it and committing ourselves to trust you and put our hope and our trust in you. Amen. Amen. Let's do communion. As we come to communion, this is a really important part of our life of our church. And um, it's worth me saying from the outset that we believe as an eldership that this is really something for Christians to do. It's not because if you're not a Christian, we don't want to leave you out. We love you. Uh, but this is about sharing in the body and the blood of Jesus. And therefore, if you're not a Christian, it won't really mean much to you. So if you're not a Christian, we would love you to pray with you. Uh, we'd love you to come to the front if you want and we'd pray a blessing on you. Uh, but otherwise, feel free just to sit and encounter God wherever you are. If you're a Christian this morning, we'd invite you to come and take communion. And three things I felt for communion as I prepared. 
I really felt that maybe we want to use this moment to thank God for his faithfulness. <laughs> Though we're unfaithful, he is faithful. Though we mess it up, he remains faithful and pursues us. Though we don't hit the mark, he still partners and works with us. Why don't you, as you take communion, why don't you spend some time just thanking him? Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Secondly, I wondered whether there's some here that need to bring specific situations to God, things that you're facing, maybe in your own life, those around you, situations where you need that great rescuer. You need God to move. God often works in ways we don't understand, but we do know that he works. Why don't you use this time to commit these things into God's hand and say, God, here's this. I realise that I would want this to happen, I would want this to happen, but I just commit it into your hands. And then thirdly, why don't you use this as an opportunity to ask for the faith to trust him to trust him. It's a critical part of the covenant of partnership. Lord, help us to believe you, to trust you. So Father, as we come to your table, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the faith of Abraham, Lord, that your rescue plan, we begin to see the plan that you had from the beginning of time. But we thank you for Jesus. you were faithful you kept the covenant when we couldn't you did the work when we couldn't give us faith Lord to put our hope and our trust in you and Lord into the brokenness of our world our own brokenness our own sin, our own rebellion those that we know and love, our families, our communities, uh, the nation we live in, the world. Lord, may you, through us in some small way, demonstrate your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. listening to this podcast from Amblepoke Community Church. For more information about who we are, what we believe and how you can get involved, check out our website 